Are you looking for a trusted property insurance partner to help your business grow and stay resilient? FM Global uses science, data, and research to help you make informed decisions. By working together, FM Global can help you grow your company with confidence and deliver the protection and expertise you need to thrive. We're also here to help you navigate the complex world of ESG. We'll work with you to identify and mitigate risks related to natural disasters and offer solutions that contribute to a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper. This is William B. Davis, and you're listening to X-Files Truth. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. This place is a veritable factory, cosmetic surgery is the boom industry of the medical world, and ASU wards like this are a goldmine. Everybody's doing it, so I hear. They were burned or scorched. It's the shape of a pentagram. What's she been doing in here? Probably not tax returns. The truth is out. Welcome back to X Files Truth. Today's file is Sanguinarium. X-File number, classified. The plot. During a routine liposuction operation in Chicago, Dr. Harrison Lloyd suddenly begins to violently remove such large amounts of fat from a patient that the patient dies. Lloyd tells Mulder that he killed the patient due to being spiritually possessed. Scully is skeptical about Lloyd's claims believing he's only making it up to escape legal consequences. Mulder inspects the operating room and discovers pentagrams burned into the floor, suspecting witchcraft as the cause. Upon reviewing the tapes of the operation, Mulder decides to check what type of medication Lloyd was taking. Meanwhile, the staff at Lloyd's clinic are shocked when another plastic surgeon, Dr. Alacqua, murders a patient under unusual circumstances. Scully interviews Alacqua, who claims to not be able to remember anything from what happened. Scully deduces that both Alacqua and Lloyd were taking the same medicine. Mulder's belief in the cause for the unexplained phenomena strengthens when he reviews the tape of the second murder, observing a pentagram-like pattern on the stomach of the victim. Worried by the events, the staff tells Mulder and Scully about a similar series of deaths that occurred at the same hospital ten years prior. They suspect Rebecca Waite, a nurse who is the only person present at all the death scenes. The agents visit Waite's house, discovering evidence that she practiced witchcraft. However, the evidence has been planted there by a staff member of the hospital. Elsewhere. Dr. Jack Franklin is non-fatally assaulted at his house by Waite. Attempts to question Waite are prevented when she starts to vomit pins and then dies shortly after. Mulder deduces that the birthdays of the victims match up with the dates of the witch's Sabbath, meaning that continued murders will occur. This calendar was open to April. The 30th is marked by a symbol that you're familiar with by now. What's the significance of the 30th? 
It's one of the four greater witches' Sabbaths. They're seasonal high holy days. According to that book over there, it's also known as Rudmas. It's also the birth date of the first victim. Now, July 31st is also marked with a pentagram. This coincides with Lamas, another one of the witches' Sabbaths. It's also the birth date of the second victim. So you think she was choosing her victims based on their birth dates? No, no, no. Remember I said the pentagram is, is, a, is a protective symbol. I think Rebecca Waite was trying to save those patients. I think she knew that they were in danger. Which made her attack Dr. Franklin. I think she knew something about him. And I think we should find out what that is before he goes back to work. Back at the clinic, another patient is murdered when her face is melted by acid. With no suspects left to turn to, Mulder uses the hospital's computer program to determine what Franklin would look like under heavy plastic surgery. He's shocked to find that Franklin is actually Dr. Clifford Cox, a cosmetic doctor who presumably died during the first spree of murders. Cox attempts to murder his fifth and final victim in a quest to gain eternal youth. He removes the skin on his own face using a ritual to make him appear younger. Cox is never caught, with the episode ending with him successfully applying at another medical hospital. I can't tell you how happy we are that you've decided to join us, Dr. Hartman. Well, I like what I've seen so far. The truth is, I've always been drawn to Los Angeles. With your credentials, I'm sure you had plenty of options. I've been reviewing your patient portfolio. Your work is among the most impressive I've ever seen. I like to say, whoever God didn't get around to creating in his own image, it's our job to recreate in ours. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Sanguinarium. It's not really a great episode. Uh, it's well-named. It's a very bloody episode. And it does have a few interesting angles. Um, you know, it is kind of different. It's written by novice writers here. I believe it's the exact middle of the X-Files. I think it's the episode that marks the exact middle of uh, the series. Nothing about the episode really blows me away. I do have a couple connections to some of the topics in the episode. The nurse, Rebecca Waite, is actually named after Rebecca Nurse, who was accused of witchcraft in the Salem uh, trials. Salem Village, actually. I actually lived on the street right across from the farm where she lived, and she was tried in Salem, which was the capital at the time, and I worked for the city of Salem. So I do have those two connections with the uh, episode. So, you know, <laughs> semi-interesting, I guess. Other than that, um, <laughs> I don't really like the episode that much. I'd probably give it about 6.5 or something. Like I said, for X-Files, a 7 is probably about average. I consider a 7 about average for an X-Files episode, so this is, this is below average. It's watchable if you can deal with the blood, but it doesn't really draw you in. Didn't draw me in really. The music was, you know, probably the only saving grace, but it wasn't even Mark Snow's best music on this one, so I guess that's all I have to say about Sanguinarium. On the mythometer, it's definitely a monster of the week. There's no myth arc elements to this one that I can think of. For the sequelizer, it does have a high potential for a sequel. Um, 
doctor's never caught, and he's now going to be working at another medical clinic there. So he's continuing his work. So definitely a high potential for a sequel. That's about everything I can think of for Sanguinarium. Now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Sanguinarium. Agents. In Sanguinarium, Mulder and Scully deal with one of the grossest and most disturbing cases thus far in this season of the X-Files. A doctor is possessed by some dark force that causes him to kill a patient in one of the most hideous ways imaginable. Scully goes right for a medical explanation, trying to attribute the state of possession to the doctor's possible misuse of sleeping pills. And she also gives Mulder her familiar that-is-science-fiction look when he first talks about documented cases of spirit or demonic possession. This case seems to be another one close to Scully's fields of expertise, including her rattled-off statistics about how profitable a cosmetic surgery unit can be for an entire hospital. Only due to bad timing do Mulder and Scully missing another death by surgery on a CTV camera. I don't know. But I think not being able to feel your feet all of a sudden when you're getting a chemical face peel means something really bad is about to happen. Mulder soon turns up a videotape of a doctor stabbing the man to death in his sleep with the same pentagram mark on the floor. It's Scully's turn to be flippant for once with the comment about putting out an APB for someone wearing a tall black hat, which I find kind of funny. Mulder just brushes it off and soon a second doctor possession happens. Another funny moment, kind of, is when Mulder's looking at a before-and-after comparison on the computer of what he may look like with a nose job. Yeah, the idea of that kind of magic, done with scalpels and silicone, has its appeal, even for Mulder. Turns out, a string of accidental deaths have happened at the hospital before, with nurse weight being a common thread. Now things get extra dark and creepy as we see Nurse Waite herself performing some witchcraft. Outside on her front porch, Mulder makes another brief joke about a broom by the door being, quote, probable cause. It's really quick, as these moments are, but Scully has a trace of a smile for a second, showing, yeah, she likely think that, thinks that's kind of funny as well. Anyway, Mulder and Scully intercept Nurse Waite being arrested after she attacked Dr. Franklin, just in time for her to vomit up the straight pins. Mulder's explanation of witchcraft, not surprisingly, gets dismissed right before Dr. Franklin gets left alone to levitate. Another slight cosmetic surgery reference comes up as Mulder's looking at himself in the motel room mirror as Scully comes in. Then he tells her she looks tired. I've heard before that some people, typically those on the vein side, interpret that to mean you look old. But of course, I don't think that's the meaning here between Mulder and Scully. With the discussion they have right after, we get to hear a lot more of Mulder's expertise in the subjects of witchcraft and the occult which I actually find pretty interesting, one of the most interesting bits out of this whole episode. And we can tell some of that is still unfamiliar to Scully, judging from her expression. 
And she at least, for the most part, listens without argument. Well, apart from the idea of people spontaneously throwing up unexplained objects in supposed cases of possession, Mulder turns out to have the right idea by IDing Dr. Franklin via a facial alteration software program, even though the changes are only possible through blood sacrifice, not through actual surgery. Blood sacrifice. Most potent offering in black magic. What if this man, having reached the limits of medical miracles, decided to stage a miracle all his own? So this man committed these murders in order to make himself beautiful. Everybody wants to be beautiful, Scully. In the end, Mulder and Scully run into a couple of instances of gory surgery gone horribly awry, including a case of ingested surgical instruments. Giving the doctor who cut off his own face a chance to escape and start a new practice. In the City of Angels, fittingly enough. One reason I do like Sanguinarium. It taps into people's very common fears of aging, and, in some cases, their willingness to go under the knife to prevent it. The idea of things going terribly wrong during this kind of surgery, I think these two guest writers do succeed to some extent at getting under viewers' skin. In a manner of speaking, of course. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X 4.6 Sanguinarium. Original air date November 10, 1996. Written by Chris Carter with Valerie and Vivian Mayhew and directed by Kim Manners. What comes out must first come in. Witchcraft, black magic, blood sacrifice, allotriography. A regular 80s Saturday night, don't you think? Allotriography is the act of vomiting or disgorging foreign and foul objects usually associated with a possessed person. Such activities were once viewed as illusions or spells caused by witches or attempts of suicide by the mentally disturbed. During the Middle Ages, most of these acts were viewed as indent indications that the devil had entered the body of the person. Foreign objects vomited by the victim could range from live creatures such as toads, snakes, worms, or butterflies, to pieces of iron, nails, small files, pins, needles, feathers, stones, cloth, shreds of glass, seaweed, or foam. Witchcraft, also called witchery or spellcraft, broadly means the practice of and belief in magical skills and abilities that are able to be exercised individually by designated social groups or by persons with the necessary esoteric secret knowledge. Witchcraft is a complex concept that varies culturally and societally, therefore it is difficult to define with precision, and cross-cultural assumptions about the meaning of or significance of the term should be applied with caution. 
Witchcraft often occupies a religious, divinatory, or medicinal role and is often present within societies and groups whose cultural framework includes a magical worldview. Although witchcraft can often share common ground with related concepts such as sorcery, the paranormal, magic, superstition, necromancy, possession, shamanism, healing, spiritualism, nature worship, and the occult, it is usually seen as distinct from these when examined by sociologists and anthropologists. Historically, the witchcraft label has been applied to practices people believe influence the mind, body, or property of others against their will, or practices that the person doing the labeling believes undermine social or religious order. Some modern commentators believe the malefic nature of witchcraft is a Christian projection. The concept of a magic worker influencing another person's body or property against their will was clearly present in many cultures as traditions in both folk magic and religious magic have the purpose of countering malicious magic or identifying malicious magic users. Many examples appear in ancient texts such as those from Egypt and Babylonia. Malicious magic users can become a credible cause for disease, sickness in animals, bad luck, sudden death, impotence, and other such misfortunes. Witchcraft of a more benign and socially acceptable sort may then be employed to turn the malevolence aside or identify the supposed evildoer so that punishment may be carried out. The folk magic used to identify or protect against malicious magic users is often indistinguishable from that used by the witches themselves. Probably the most obvious characteristic of a witch was the ability to cast a spell, spell being the word used to signify the means employed to carry out a magical action. A spell can consist of a set of words, a formula or verse, or a ritual action, or any combination of these. Spells traditionally were cast by many methods, such as by the inscription of runes or sigils of an object to give it magical powers by the immolation or binding of a wax or clay image of a person to affect him or her magically, by the recitation of incantations, by the performance of physical rituals, by the employment of magical herbs as amulets or potions, by gazing at mirrors, swords, or other specula for purposes of divination, and by many other means. The concept of witchcraft and the belief in its existence has existed since the dawn of human history. It has been present or central at various times and in many diverse forms among cultures and religions worldwide, including both primitive and highly advanced cultures, and continues to have an important role in many cultures today. Scientifically, the existence of magical powers and witchcraft are generally believed to lack credence and to be unsupported by high-quality experimental testing, although individual witchcraft practices and effects may be open to scientific explanation or explained via mentalism and psychology. Historically, the predominant concept of witchcraft in the Western world derives from Old Testament laws against witchcraft and entered the mainstream when belief in witchcraft gained church approval in the early modern period. It posits a theosophical conflict between good and evil, where witchcraft was generally evil and often associated with the devil and devil worship. This culminated in deaths, torture, and scapegoating, and many years of large-scale witch trials and witch hunts, especially in Protestant Europe. Black magic has traditionally referred to the use of supernatural powers or magic for evil and selfish purposes. With respect to the left-hand path and right-hand path dichotomy, Black magic is the malicious left-hand counterpart of benevolent white magic. 
In modern times, some find that the definition of black magic has been convoluted by people who define magic or ritualistic practices that they disapprove of as black magic. Like its counterpart white magic, the origins of black magic can be traced to the primitive ritualistic worship of spirits as outlined in Robert M. Place's 2009 book Magic and Alchemy. Unlike white magic, in which Place sees parallels with primitive shamanistic efforts to achieve closeness with spiritual beings, the rituals that developed into modern black magic were designed to invoke those same spirits to produce beneficial outcomes for the practitioner. Place also provides a broad modern definition of both black and white magic, preferring instead to refer to them as high magic, white, and low magic, black, based primarily on intentions of the practitioner employing them. He acknowledges, though, that this broader definition of high and low suffers from prejudices as good intention folk magic may be considered low, while ceremonial magic involving expensive or exclusive components may be considered by some as high magic, regardless of intent. During the Renaissance, many magical practices and rituals were considered evil or irreligious and, by extension, black magic in the broad sense. Witchcraft and non-mainstream esoteric study were prohibited and targeted by the Inquisition. As a result, natural magic developed as a way for thinkers and intellectuals to advance esoteric and ritualistic study without significant persecution. While natural magic became popular among the educated and upper classes of the 16th and 17th century, ritualistic magic and folk magic remained subject to persecution. 20th century author Montague Summers generally rejects the definition of white and black magic as contradictory, though he highlights the extent to which magic in general, regardless of intent, was considered dark or black, and cites William Perkins' posthumous 1608 instructions in that regard. All witches, convicted by the magistrate, should be executed. He allows no exception, and under this condemnation fall all diviners, charmers, jugglers, all wizards, commonly called wise men or wise women. All those purported good witches which do not hurt but good, which do not spoil and destroy but save and deliver, should come under the extreme sentence. In particular, though, the term was most commonly reserved for those accused of invoking demons and other evil spirits, those hexing or cursing their neighbors, those using magic to destroy crops, and those capable of leaving their earthly bodies and traveling great distances in spirit. Summers also highlights the etymological development of the term Negromancer in common use from 1200 to approximately 1500, or broadly, one skilled in the black arts. In a modern context, the line between white magic and black magic is somewhat clearer, and most modern definitions focus on intent rather than practice. There is also an extent to which many modern Wicca and witchcraft practitioners have sought to distance themselves from those intent on practicing black magic. Those who seek to do harm or evil are less likely to be accepted into mainstream Wiccan circles or covens in an era where benevolent magic is increasingly associated with New Age Gnosticism and self-help spiritualism. The influence of popular culture has allowed other practices to be drawn in under the broad banner of black magic, including the concept of Satanism. While the invocation of demons or spirits is an accepted part of black magic, this practice is distinct from the worship or deification of such spiritual beings. White magic is supposedly utilized only for good or unselfish purposes, and black magic, we are told, is used only for selfish or evil reasons. Satanism draws no such dividing line. 
Magic is magic, be it used to help or hinder. The Satanist, being the magician, should have the ability to decide what is just and then apply the powers of magic to attain his goals. Sacrifice is the offering of food, objects, or the lives of animals to a higher purpose, in particular divine beings, as an act of appropriation or worship. While sacrifice often implies ritual killing, the term offering can be used for bloodless sacrifices of cereal food or artifacts. For offerings of liquids by pouring, the term libation is used. Human sacrifice was practiced by many ancient cultures. People would be ritually killed in a manner that was supposed to please or appease a god or spirit. Some occasions for human sacrifice found in multiple cultures on multiple continents include human sacrifice to accompany the dedication of a new temple or bridge, sacrifice of people upon the death of a king, high priest, or great leader, the sacrifice were supposed to serve or accompany the deceased leader in the next life, human sacrifice in times of natural disaster, droughts, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, etc., were seen as a sign of anger or displeasure by deities, and sacrifices were supposed to lessen the divine ire. Human sacrifice is the act of killing one or more human beings, usually as an offering to a deity as part of a religious ritual. Its typology closely parallels the various practices of ritual slaughter of animals and of religious sacrifice in general. Human sacrifice has been practiced in various cultures throughout history. Victims were typically ritually killed in a manner that was supposed to please or appease gods, spirits, or the deceased, for example, as a proprietary offering or as a retainer sacrifice when the king's servants are killed in order for them to continue to serve their master in the next life. Closely related practices found in some tribal societies are cannibalism and headhunting. By the Iron Age, with the associated developments in religion, human sacrifice was becoming less common throughout the Old World and came to be looked down upon as barbaric in pre-modern times. Blood libel is a false charge of ritual directed against the Jewish community by Christians in the Middle Ages, and the idea spread to other communities, communities subsequently. For now, I'd say this case is open. So the final word on Sanguinarium, everybody wants to be beautiful, Scully. What's out there for Sanguinarium? First up is the Unwelcome Commentary Blog's review. Plastic surgery is intrinsically horrifying. Just the names of the procedures represented here. Liposuction, face peel, sound pretty gross. Pair this with the at-the-time growing popularity of such procedures, and it's unsurprising that the show would explore this area of medical science, if only to exploit it for all its grotesque qualities. So. Were the audience to face meltings, face suckage, explosions of blood, and pentagram leeches? The latter is clearly a band name in the making. A little disappointing, however, that Sanguinarium is lacking in the substance department. Sure, it's insanely gross, but pretty light everywhere else. The mystery of the week felt a little like die hand, die roulettes, 
with a group of superior types sitting around and discussing a cover-up of some kind of supernatural phenomena responsible for mass casualties, all within a place that's supposed to be safe. I guess it was a neat red herring that the medical board at the hospital wasn't a large coven of black magic folk, but it dragged the episode down a little. I've voiced my belief in the past that guest star-driven scenes never really work in a show like this, unless Mulder and Scully themselves are intentionally written as supporting characters. Seeing a bunch of random people interacting with one another with ambiguous dialogue and vacant faces just isn't fun. The resolution, involving face swapper Dr. Franklin and white witch Nurse Walty, is intriguing but newbie writers Valerie and Vivian Mayhew struggle to justify some of the more elaborate set pieces. It's all a little empty. Yes, it's fun seeing Franklin levitating. It's great when Watt begins to cough up pins, and equally awesome when she emerges from a bath of blood, but none of this has any real purpose or explanation. It's insanity for the sake of insanity. While there are a lot of problems here, the episode does at least have a momentum, which never lets up. It's fun, but completely lacking in anything resembling a point or purpose. Rating, C. So what are my two cents? Those are the first visuals I get when I think of Sanguinarium. A witch emerging from a bathtub full of blood, the coughing up of needles, and liposuction gone very wrong. Going back to this episode, I have to think for a minute what the actual storyline entails, once you mentally get past all the gore. While they may not have been on the same level as the regular X-Files writers, I have to give these two guest writers some props for very bloody, gross creativity in those visuals. Up next, we have Max and Radhika from Apartment 42 Revisited. Radhika writes, The X-Files often used established writers to pen its episodes, but it was also a show that occasionally relied on a spec script, which allowed less experienced writers to write for programs they may not have been part of otherwise. In some cases, this worked out really well. Vince Gilligan, now forced to be reckoned with in the industry, wrote Soft Light back in Season 2 as a spec project. His effort went on to land him a solid future on The X-Files, where he went on to write more episodes, while serving as co-executive co producer on even more. But that was the story of Vince Gilligan and Soft Light. I would say Sanguinarium never quite showed that level of promise. And the writers, sisters Valerie and Vivian Mayhew, who did go on to do some more work in television, at least until 2001 or so, never really went on to build the reputation that Gilligan did for himself. I haven't included every detail of the plot in here, but aside from the pentagrams and inverted pentagrams, and hints of possession, and a certain doctor's changing appearance, I don't know how witchcraft logically comes into play here. I mean, I guess the idea is that the Doctor needs to kill a certain amount of people linked to the Witch's Sabbath every few years or so to perform the magic needed to... peel his face off while looking younger and beautiful? He's not particularly stunning, so I don't really get it, especially since Mulder makes quips about everyone wanting to be beautiful. I guess it's more of a live-forever kind of thing. Max has this to add. Almost ten years ago, when I was re-watching the series with my friend and roommate Kenji, who I interviewed about his fandom last year, I recall my general reaction to this episode being a wonderfully gory excursion that was atypical for a show that preferred to terrify its viewers, by letting them imagine horrors not shown on the television screen. Here, the spec script by the Mayhews puts everything on the table and then some. While I don't outright dismiss the episode today as a clunker, it seems to me that the best course of action should have been that should have been taken 
was to play with the allegory more than the episode itself did. Radhika playfully compared this episode to the FX show Nip Tuck, but by comparison, Nip Tuck got a lot more mileage out of the many thematic facets that one could explore about the booming practice of plastic surgery. Hell, they even had Joan Rivers come on a lament of all the times she went under the knife to recapture something, her youth, that was gone forever. In Sanguinarium, the more compelling material does not get drowned does get drowned out, but in a din of blood, guts, and screams. Predating the malign torture porn genre by almost a decade, this entry in the X-Files has more in common with Saw and Hostel than our heroes poking around in dimly lit environs with flashlights. If the writers wanted to show the links to which Dr. Cox has gone to be forever young, then I understand their intention. But as the great Alfred Hitchcock once said, there is no terror in the bang, only the anticipation of it. Still, there are some pretty damn good scenes of dread and impending doom, like when Mulder and Scully go to Nurse Waite's residence to investigate her possible involvement in all this madness. Images like the bathtub filled with blood are incredibly cinematic, and scenes like this could be said to be the crew beginning to prep and practice for a possible X-Files movie that was making its way around the rumor mill at the time. The series has always been known for its indelible, iconic moments and characters. And while this is no fluke man, or a submarine stuck in the Arctic ice, the sequence may be the one in the episode that is genuinely, t genuinely terrifying. Far as what I think, for the quite true Alfred Hitchcock quote, this is my favorite part of any review of this particular episode. And I think that Max makes a good point, that the Mayhews gave us a solid precursor to torture porn, with the disturbing, gross, gory, and often in-your-face visuals in Sanguinarium. It almost seems a shame the Mayhews didn't go on to successes in this particular horror genre that's become so popular in the past decade or so. My final word on Sanguinarium? Well, if it's that simple, why don't you put out an APB for someone riding a broom and wearing a tall black hat? Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile more on Illuminati and blood sacrifices in 2015. Why did the sacrificial system require a blood sacrifice? The whole of the Old Testament, every book, points toward the great sacrifice that was to come that of Jesus' sacrificial giving of his own life on our behalf. Leviticus 17.11 is the Old Testament's central statement about the significance of blood in the sacrificial system. God, speaking to Moses, declares, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonements for one's life. A sacrifice is defined as the offering up of something precious for a cause or a reason. Making atonement is satisfying someone or something for an offense committed. The Leviticus verse can be read more clearly now. God said, I have given it to you, the creature's life, which is in its blood, to make atonement for yourselves, covering the offense you have committed against me. 
In other words, those who are covered by the blood sacrifice are set free from the consequences of sin. Of course, the Israelites did not know of Jesus per se or how he would die on their behalf and then rise again, but they did believe God would be sending them a Savior. All of the many, many blood sacrifices seen throughout the Old Testament were foreshadowing the true, once-for-all-time sacrifice to come so that the Israelites would never forget that without the blood there is no forgiveness. This shedding of blood is a substitutionary act. Therefore, the last clause of Leviticus 17.11 could be read either the blood makes atonement at the cost of the life or makes atonement in the place of the life. Hebrews 9.11-18 confirms the symbolism of blood as life and applies Leviticus 17.11 to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 states clearly that the Old Testament blood sacrifices were temporary and only atoned for sin partially and for a short time, hence the need to repeat the sacrifices yearly. But when Christ entered the most holy place, he did so to offer his own blood once and for all, making future sacrifices unnecessary. This is what Jesus meant by his dying words on the cross, it is finished. Never again would the blood of bulls and goats cleanse men from their sin. Only by accepting Jesus' blood shed on the cross for the remission of sins can we stand before God covered in the righteousness of Christ. Moloch was the Canaanite version of the Egyptian god Set. The god Set was a homosexual god of evil. He was worshipped during ceremonies that involved human sacrifice, cannibalism, and homosexual orgies. As the god of destruction, he became the god of the Egyptian military. In ancient Rome, he was worshipped as the god Saturn by the Roman military, often with baptism by blood. Thus, we see that Satan, Set, Saturn, Moloch, etc., was worshipped by Solomon and his wives as he grew old and senile. This involved heterosexual sex orgies, homosexual sex orgies, human sacrifice, and even cannibalism. Our modern high-level military leadership appears to have the same values as the ancients. The Knights Templar, in pursuit of Solomon's wisdom, also worships two deities. In Freemasonry, they refer to a supreme being at the lower levels. This supreme being gave unto man the principles of reason. The Masonic use of the symbols of geometry have reference to this being of light that they believe gave unto man both logic and science. This supreme being is in fact Lucifer, the god of the Illuminati philosopher kings. According to Illuminati mythos, he is the Prometheus that gave unto man the forbidden fire and defiance of the god Zeus. He is Lucifer, a son of the morning, the Illuminati god of wisdom. He is represented by the sign of the Egyptian sun god, Horus, the all-seeing eye that sits atop the unfinished pyramid, the Temple of Solomon. He is the sworn enemy of God and Jesus Christ that was cast down to this earth. Unknown to the lower levels of Freemasonry, Satan is the god of the second highest level of the Freemasons in the Illuminati military and national police. He is separate from Lucifer and is worshipped as the great destroyer of mankind. It is to Satan that they make their human sacrifices, practice homosexuality, and even cannibalism. There is a dirty little secret going on in Hollywood, and not many people know about it. You know what they say, you get nothing for free, and it seems as if it's very true for these famous celebrities of Hollywood. The Illuminati believe that Satan has to be permitted to destroy mankind completely before the earth can be rebuilt as the kingdom of Lucifer. Thus, the greatest Illuminati symbol is the phoenix rising from the ashes of our modern civilization. 
To become the wealthiest in the 20 million plus club for a higher position and royalty from the elite, you need to make a human or blood sacrifice. The Illuminati have also sacrificed many celebrities as a human solstice sacrifice. These celebrities took the money bait Satan offered Christ if he would bow down to him. Like any path followed by man, there is a process of proving yourself and your loyalty to the organization. Many independent researchers claim they have sources who verify blood sacrifice or murder is part of moving up to the Dark Order ranks. The psychology stems from sacrificing someone you have a close emotional bond. This proves to the dark forces you chose them above all things. From Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Many celebrities have lost their mothers after climbing into the pit of dark rituals. Here are a few celebrities who have lost or sacrificed their own mothers. Kanye West, Andre 3000, Bruno Mars, and Jennifer Hudson. There is also a theory that these celebrities share their bodies, like a timeshare, with spirits. This is the spirit's way of experimenting the flesh while gifting their hosts with fame and riches. It also gives the host the ability to manipulate dark energy from etheric realm. This is why they are positioned as the main event at the mega rituals like the Super Bowl. Some researchers, researchers erroneously believe these actors are here to show us something, when in reality it is all about energy manipulation. The dark agenda might be to open a gate, portal, murder, mass murder, or simple possession. Remember the Prince of Persia from the Book of Daniel? This spiritual entity was given a whole country to govern over from the realm of spirit. He was so powerful he could block prayers. This is what we are up against, and these celebrities are vessels, part of larger, a larger dark plan to keep our souls and country in the dark. Would you like to learn more about these secret mysteries and decode the symbolism that is ubiquitous in our daily lives? At IlluminatiWatcher.com, Isaac Weishaupt explores these various controversial themes and exposes the agenda and manipulation all around us. Checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hi everyone. Up first we have a bit of exciting news that was sent to us via Twitter by Knife Inc. who writes the review is out there blog. It looks like Salome, who writes Musings of an X-File, may be starting up that review blog again. Um, she recently posted on Musings of an X-Files Facebook. What's the X-Files without a supernatural resurrection? Yes? Now, if I can just get someone to help me roll back the stone. So, that at least points to that might, that blog might be starting up again with some new episode reviews, which is pretty exciting. So, we'll have to stay tuned for that. Nifink also commented on that on Twitter. My poor heart might not be able to take it. Oh, X-Files Revival, you do work wonders. 
which is pretty funny and true. There's also been some recent chatter on Facebook on whether or not Walter Skinner and the Cigarette Smoking Man will be coming back for the six new episodes of The X-Files, which as far as we know are slated to start filming this summer. And Wysan Liu left us this comment, Not too soon, in my opinion. Mulder and Scully without CSM is like Starks without Lannisters, The Walking Dead without the Governor, etc. I was expecting CSM to appear in one form or another. He didn't die the first time around, e.g. Redo 2. What makes us believe that he even died in the truth? David Duchovny does, did us a favor by telling us that CSM is coming back. And it looks like a little bit after that, an official announcement broke. Very happy to announce that Walter Skinner will once again be getting all grumpy with his two wayward kids. Very happy. It's official. That last bit refers to a tweet that Mitch Pileggi sent out on April 20th. And at Lonely Bob on Twitter also sent us a link to this short blurb on shocktoyoudrop.com. And it says in part, Chris Carter has indicated he'd like to have everyone back, including Annabeth Gish and Robert Patrick, as special agents Monica Reyes and John Doggett, respectively. The X-Files shoots this summer in Vancouver. Carter has teased that the new iteration will be a mix of standalone cases and mythology episodes. We'll definitely be bringing you all more major updates on the X-Files revival as its release date draws closer. As always, if you love X-Files Truth, we'd love it if you'd leave us a short review on iTunes, or you could just leave us a star rating. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at X-Files underscore Truth, and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash X-Files Truth podcast. And if you'd like, you could also email us at X-Files Truth at live.com, or drop by our website, xfilestruth.com. That wraps it up for this time around. Thanks to all of you guys who got in touch with us. The truth is still out there, and it just may finally, eventually, be revealed. X-Files Truth, Lone Gunman Frohickey delivers to Mulder and Scully a secret dossier on the sinister chain smoker whom Mulder calls Cancer Man, while the target of the fascinating dissertation eavesdrops from a nearby high-rise with a sniper's rifle at the ready. Well, that closes the case for Sanguinarium. I hope you guys 
get in touch with us soon if you haven't yet or if you're a regular we definitely look forward to hearing from you guys and i'm sure we're all pretty psyched about the new episodes that'll be coming out i think in january so that is going to be awesome it's so cool that we still have x-files to look forward to plus we have a bunch of great episodes coming up soon so we look forward to hearing from you guys soon also and we will see you the first sunday of next month for a great episode musings of a cigarette smoking man Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th Century Fox. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.